As we pray together the last couple of Sundays to open our time of studying the scriptures together, so I'd like for us to pray again today. We are apart physically, geographically, in lots of different places, but we are united as one body in Christ. And as we come together in worship and in prayer and to be attentive to God's word, let's pray together. If you'd like to stand, if you're able to stand at home, you're welcome to stand. I'd like you to pray with me using the words that we're going to put up on the screen just now. Let these words be our prayer. Let's speak them together. God and Father of the Lord Jesus, speak to us now through your word. Open the eyes of our hearts to your truth and your grace therein. Transform us according to your word and by your spirit. Mold us into the likeness of Jesus. We give you our attention. We give you ourselves. Bring about your kingdom in us and through us, here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you have heard of the National Football League's nationwide skills contest for children ages 6 through 15 called Punt, Pass, and Kick? How many of you remember Punt, Pass, and Kick? For 56 years, up until the year 2017, the NFL sponsored these competitions in big cities and small towns all across America, in which contestants, children, youth, would see how far they could throw a football, kick a football, punt a football, and trying to keep it straight. And whoever could do that and combine those three yardages or scores together and achieve the highest score would win their local competition in their age group for punt, pass, and kick. And the winner of the local contest would go to the regional contest, and the winner of that contest would go to the sectional contest, and on and on and up and up, until eventually all of the winners would meet at halftime on national TV of NFL football games and compete in each grade, grade uh, range, and eventually by gender, to see who could punt, pass, and kick a football the farthest on national TV. And I remember the day in third grade that the sponsor of the local punt, pass, and kick competition came to my school and came to my classroom and told us about the opportunity this coming Saturday morning at the local high school to participate. Now, my family at that time lived in a small town in south central Texas where the biggest things in no particular order were growing cotton, raising cattle, eating barbecue, hunting deer, and either playing or watching football. Football was huge. And so early on that Saturday morning in the late fall, I remembered that the punt, pass, and kick contest was going to happen at our local high school. I begged my mom to let me out of my regular time of morning, Saturday morning chores so that I could go and participate in this competition. And we sort of went back and forth. And finally, she relented and said, okay, if you promise me you'll get to your chores as soon as you get home, you can go. And I said, I promise. And I jumped on my bike and headed for the high school. A couple of hours later, I showed up back home with a big white box under one of my arms. And my mom said, what is that? And with all the pride that a kid could possibly ever have, I opened the box and revealed to my mom what I thought at the time was the biggest, heaviest, 
shiniest gold trophy I had ever seen. And I told her that even though I was still eight because it was late in the fall and my birthday was in December, that I had to compete against the nine-year-olds and still somehow managed to come out on top. And my mom, doing what any good mom would do at that point, gives me a big hug, tells me that she's proud of me, and takes that trophy and places it prominently on this table in our living room so that everyone who would ever come into our house and anyone who ever entered our house, the first thing they saw, sort of blinded by the glittering shininess of this huge trophy, would see that I was the first person in our family, as far as I knew, to ever win a big trophy. I had done something. I had earned something. I had proven myself. I had merited something. I was good. I was strong. I was worthy. I was capable. I was deserving. Regardless of anything ever I did after that, good or bad, I had won that trophy. I had won that competition by natural ability and focused effort I had come out on top. And like me, many people, maybe most people, maybe everyone, we grow up with that sort of mindset, having either observed that that's how the world works or being taught directly or indirectly that that's how a person's worth is determined or that's how we earn or obtain or achieve the world's favor, blessing, love, affirmation, and everything that goes with those things. As if the value of a human being is determined by a merit-based economy in which our good deeds and the impressive accomplishments are compiled over the course of one's years that eventually produces a lifetime composite score of some number that God not only is aware of, but one day will look at in a focused way. Having learned that we can impress people and so maybe we also maybe can impress God. How else would it work? But God is not impressed with our accomplishments or our trophies or any of the good things we've done. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that all of our best acts and deeds are just like filthy rags. Just dirty rags, that's it. So tainted as they are and so tainted as we are by self-interest and self-absorption, as I was, as I am. In fact, there's nothing that we can do, nothing that you can do, nothing that I can do, as it turns out, to impress God. Nothing that you or I can do to cause God to step back and go, wow, that guy's pretty impressive. Wow, she hit it out of the park. Wow, what a pure heart he has. Wow, what an amazing track record she has accumulated. Look, look at all those things on her resume. She was so generous. He was incredibly kind. Wow, I'm so impressed. God doesn't say that. God's not impressed. I don't think God is down on people. But he just isn't impressed with even the best of our righteousness. Because as we read elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us to our own things, our own devices, our own way. We all have gone astray. Of course, no one in the church gets, gets excited when the preacher starts talking like this. No one. 
gets excited when the preacher starts talking like this. It feels like he's heading toward and might just mention the S word. And I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about sin. And we just can't seem to let go of that in the church. Or why can't the preacher let go of that? We love to talk in our world today about shortcomings, about weaknesses, about dysfunctions, about disorders, about addictions, about growth areas, about complex family systems, about the imperfect home that we grew up in, about how our lapses are not as bad as the next guy's failures, about how we've never actually killed anyone yet, okay? But wait until after the election and we'll see if that's still true and see if we can say that. Hopefully we'll still be able to. We're not so bad, we say to ourselves, our culture says to us and one another. But nor are we so good. We tell the truth most of the time, unless you count exaggerating or embellishing or reframing things to our advantage. We put other people before ourselves, except when we're late, or except when we're in a hurry, or except when we're stressed out, or except when doing so may inconvenience us, or cost us something, or put us at some sort of risk. We wish other people well. We love people in the biblical sense. We wish them well and intend good and well for them, except when the other person is stubborn or obtuse or obstinate, or unless they disagree with us, or unless they oppose us, or unless sincerely wishing another person well means actually getting out of the car to help them. Are you with me? How good is good enough? How good is good enough for God? How big and shiny does that trophy have to be? And the accomplishments that it represents. How big, how grand, how magnificent, how beautiful does that trophy about all of our good works have to be? Is there something, is there anything that I can do that will get me into God's good side, on God's good side, that can balance the leisure and even get me back in the black? Think about this. If I'm standing before a judge... And the charges are read and the prosecuting attorney makes his opening statement and witnesses are called forward and the jury returns its verdict and every word that's been spoken and every piece of evidence presented is clear that I really did say those unkind words and those self-serving words that deeply injured another person's spirit. Or if I really did see my brother or sister in need and I had the world's material possessions and I did nothing for them. And everyone, including me and maybe myself, agrees that I'm guilty. What is there left to do except to wait for the judge to sentence me? I could say to the judge, okay, yes, you're right. Everyone sees it. We all know here together that I did those things. Or I didn't do that thing. I didn't neglect my neighbor. But I did all of those other good things. I helped the old lady cross the road. I visited someone who was sick. I made sandwiches one Sunday morning for the homeless. I painted a house with Habitat for Humanity one time. I gave it the office. I did some random act of kindness without telling anyone about it. I went on a mission trip. 
And one time I even paid a bridge toll for the car behind me and I didn't even know who was driving it. I have all those good things that I've done too. What about those? And what's the judge going to say? None of that makes up for the fact that you still committed a crime. You're still guilty of all of these things. You broke the law. You transgressed against your neighbor. You defied God. You fell short of his glory. You still committed a crime and justice still must be served. All of the good things don't negate the fact that you sinned, that you transgressed. And justice must be served. And along comes grace. And then along comes grace. And then along comes grace. Reading from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, starting at chapter 3, verse 20. Listen closely. This is the word of God. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, known to which the law and the prophets testify. Paul has just written earlier in chapter 3 of Romans that neither Jew nor Gentile has kept God's law, and quite the opposite is true. Both Jew and Gentile have been opposed to God at every turn, and the law of God exposes this. The law of God reveals this. The law of God makes clear how things are and how we have been and how we are. Through the law, Paul writes, we become conscious of our sin. But now, Paul writes, the righteousness of God has been made known. That to which all of the Old Testament has pointed. And Paul is talking here not so much about God's own holiness or goodness or justness or justice or uprightness or righteousness. As much as Paul is speaking about a status of righteousness or not guiltiness that God bestows to others. The righteousness of God. Are you with me? But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness or this right standing or good standing or this not guiltiness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Is this righteousness about, the, about which the book of Moses and the prophets testified a righteousness that is earned, a righteousness that could be bought, a righteousness that someone deserved, a righteousness that could be won by a person's own strength of character or goodwill or cleverness or purity of heart? And the answer is no, 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 no. It is a gift. This righteousness, Paul wrote, is given through faith in Jesus Christ or through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe, who have faith, who trust. It is a gift in Jesus to all who have entrusted themselves to him and his giving. And Paul continues, there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. No one is better than anyone else. Let's say that together. No one is better than anyone else. Again, no one is better than anyone else. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All are 
justified. And that's a big word in Christian doctrine. But it's also quite simple. To be justified means to be declared not guilty. When a person goes before the judge and the judge hears the case against the person, the defendant, at the end of the trial, the judge either declares that person guilty or justified. Not guilty. Just if I'd never sinned. Just if I'd not committed that crime. Guilty or justified. And we humans, on our own, we try to justify ourselves all the time. I do it. That wasn't my fault. I'm not responsible for that. I did my part. That person made me do it. Eve made me do it. The serpent deceived me. Or in the words of the rich young ruler to Jesus, all those laws I have kept since I was young. We try to justify ourselves and our actions and our hearts and our status, claiming a righteousness of our own. If not with those explicit words, then nevertheless tacitly. But Paul wrote, for all have sinned and fall short of the majesty of God. And all are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Does a person earn their justification? No. Does a person deserve justification from God? No. Can a person be good enough to win her justification from God? No. Because it's free. And because it's free, it cannot be earned. And it cannot be earned because it's impossible to earn. I can't do it. You can't do it. There's no way. Religions all around the world say you can do it inch by inch, day by day, work by work. But no one can do it. No one is good enough. But still, how can it then be free? There's no such thing as a free lunch, we've always heard. How can this righteousness be free? Be, how can justification be free? Well, it's not really free. It's not completely free, though it's certainly free to us. But somebody, someone paid the bill. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God had held back punishing sin. All of the sin perpetrated before Jesus' incarnation. Jesus incarnation. And he took all of that along with all of the sin that would be committed after Jesus' incarnation and bundled it all up. And somehow Jesus, through his shedding of, the shedding of his blood, sinless blood, on a cross, atoned for the world's sin, paid for our debt, freely justifying us by God's grace. It's a gift whether I went home that Saturday morning with a trophy or not, whether you've been naughty or nice, whether we have walked in the way of Jesus or not. And too often we have not. The good news of God's grace is that there's nothing you can do that will cause God to love you any less than he already does. There's nothing you have done, nothing you can do, nothing you will do ever that will cause God to love you any less than he already does. And for those who are caught on the wheel of trying to earn their salvation and by grace, there's also nothing you can do to cause God to love you anymore than he already does. He loved you 
He gave up his son. He sent to us Jesus and to the whole world, allowing Jesus to die in our place so that we might be justified, declared not guilty through faith in him. God loves us just as we are and not as we should be because we will never be as we should be. God loves us just as we are and not as we should be or are supposed to be or have to be because we will never be on our own as we should be. In October of 2010, part of a copper and gold mine in Chile collapsed. Perhaps you, you remember this, trapping 33 men 2,000 feet below the surface of the earth. At first, with no help at all of them being rescued, while up on the surface, people from many fields and many nations began working together to try to figure out how to get those miners out of there alive. For days that became weeks, that became two months and then more, the trapped miners survived on sips of water and sips of milk and spoonfuls of tuna and occasional cans of sliced oranges. But never did they get out their picks and their shovels and their other tools and instruments and start chiseling away, picking away, trying to claw their way out, dig their way out, tunnel their way out, work their way out, earn their way out and up. On their own, there was no way they could do it, and they had no hope of such. No means, no way. But from above, initiated from above, done completely from above, a plan was formed, and from above, a plan was executed. First, a new hole was dug straight down to where they guessed the men were. A hole for communication. Next, another hole was dug, and through it was to be inserted a 13-foot-tall capsule, big enough to hold one person at a time that would be lowered 2,000 feet below the surface of the earth through some of the hardest rock on earth, and into which, hopefully, those men would be saved. And so on the day that they were ready, the capsule was lowered and it got into the cavern where the men were. And one at a time, the first man stepped in to the capsule. Did he have to do anything, any work, any goodness? Was it the best person, the most worthy person who went first? Was there any work of his own to do? No, he just stepped in and received the gift that had come down. 17 minutes later, during a ride up to the surface, he received salvation. He received a gift that there's no way that he could earn. And over the coming hours, the other 32, one by one, were also lifted to a salvation that they on their own could in no way obtain. This is grace. When a person has nothing to offer toward their own justification, and yet they are saved. When a gift is received that could have never been bought, when something that was not deserved and could never be earned was imputed, the Scriptures say. 
Many of you know at least parts of the story of John Newton, who as a young man in the mid-1700s was forced into service in the British Navy, which he loathed. After serving grudgingly on slave ships for several years, he was actually, because of his own rebellious heart, he was actually handed over as a slave to a princess in Africa, made a slave himself against his will. His father later successfully rescued him from that slavery, with the young Newton returning to work on slave ships and eventually becoming the captain of slave ships himself. And then he had a conversion experience one day during a big storm. And yet it was not until many late years later, after he had had this religious Christian salvation experience in a storm, it was not until many years later that he described what he called his true conversion. When he finally began opposing slavery, working with William Wilberforce for the abolition of slavery. And it was during that time that he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, which solemnly describes the amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Newton, by this time, a faithful follower of Jesus, a clergyman, did not describe himself and all others like him as a decent person, a good person, a redeemed person, but rather as a wretch through and through, top to bottom, first to last. That on his own he had no hope of mercy, no hope of joy, no hope of peace, no hope of justification, no hope of salvation, apart from the free grace, the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul writes in verse 26, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Brendan Manning, in his wonderful little book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, recounts the story of Fiorello LaGuardia, who was mayor of New York City during the worst days of the Great Depression and all of World War II. He was called by adoring New Yorkers the little flower because he was only five foot four and always wore a carnation in his lapel. He was a colorful character who used to ride the New York City fire trucks, raid speakeasies with the police department, take entire orphanages to baseball games. And whenever the New York newspapers were on strike, he would go on the radio and read the Sunday funnies to the kids. One bitterly cold night in 1935, the mayor turned up at a night court that served the poorest ward in the city. And LaGuardia dismissed the judge for the evening and took over that bench himself. Within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told LaGuardia that her daughter's husband had deserted her. Her daughter was sick and her two grandchildren were starving. But the storekeeper from whom the bread was stolen refused to drop the charges. It's a really bad neighborhood, Your Honor. It's a really bad neighborhood. She's got to be punished to teach the other people around here a lesson. And LaGuardia sighed. 
He turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. Ten dollars or ten days in jail. But even as he pronounced the sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his pocket. He extracted a bill and tossed it into the famous sombrero. Here's the $10 fine, which I now remit. And furthermore, I am going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that their grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. So the following day, the the New York City newspapers reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. Fifty cents of that amount being contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner while some 70 petty criminals, people with traffic violations, and New York City policemen, each of whom had just paid 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. God did this to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time, so as to be just in other, words, in other words, committed to justice and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And that is who God is in Jesus. The one who is just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We are the miners trapped 2,000 feet below the surface of the earth. We are collectively guilty as a human race of slavery of millions. We are the woman who stole bread. And apart from the grace of God, the lovely grace, the amazing grace, we have no hope. But in and through the generous, benevolent, unending, free grace of God in Jesus, all things are ours. Thanks, praise, applause, and a standing ovation to Him. Amen. Let's pray. We ask you to forgive us, God. We ask you for mercy. We ask you for help. We plead for your assistance. Redeem us, rescue us, save us. We have no one else. We have no other way. These things we acknowledge in grateful praise of you, in confidence of your character, your heart, your will, and your way knowing that you are both just and the one who justifies. By your character and nature, fully devoted to justice and eager and willing to justify those who are not worthy. We thank you. We praise you.
in Christ the Lord. Amen.